Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. crew thanks for joining me for another episode of mind your own karma the adoption chronicles today i have another author on the show edward deganji his book is called the gift best given and his story is a little different than what we normally hear of the adoptee journey He had a self-proclaimed good adoption and never really thought about it. In fact, he went through some of his mother's papers and found out he was adopted and admits it really didn't bother him throughout his life and that him and his parents never had a discussion about it. It wasn't until he approached his 69th birthday that he began to search for the identity of his birth mother. His journey and the many surprising discoveries he made as he searched are recounted in his memoir, The Gift Best Given. The compassion and grace that he shows throughout his journey in the book and even on the podcast as he was being interviewed is pretty amazing. And just goes to show how different each of our journeys are because we are all different. What exactly made Edward start searching at the age of 69? You will have to listen and find out. Here is my interview with Edward Giganji. So we are welcoming Ed to the show today. Hi, Ed. Hey, Melissa. How are you today? I'm great. I'm so happy that you contacted me about your book, The Gift Best Given, because it sounds like you are very compassionate towards birth mothers. And I'm really trying to focus on that a little bit more this year. So I'm so glad that you contacted me because I want to hear the story and I want to hear how that happened. How did you get that compassion? So let's just start from the beginning though, and talk about what you know about why you were put up for adoption. Yeah, It amazes me to say this. I am 75 years old. That is amazing because you don't look 75 (laughs) years old. (laughs) And I was adopted or I was taken home by my adoptive parents at a day old. Okay. And I I had what I guess everyone calls the happy experience or the idyllic experience. And I truly did. And yeah, I, I was taken home by parents who who were not able to have children of their own. And I recall I was probably six, seven years old. We had traveled to Europe at one point for the summer and going to a French orphanage. And I, at that point, I still really didn't understand the, what was going on because we had never had a conversation about my adoption. And I sort of asked, why are we going to an orphanage? That I, I knew what an orphanage was. And, and, you know, my parents said, well, wouldn't you like a little brother or sister? And in my naivete, or, or maybe not so naive, I said, well, why don't you just make one? <laughs> and they didn't explain that they could not and you know one way or another they were they were unable to adopt but sometime around that same period of time i they weren't able to adopt or they weren't able to have kids they were able they were not able to have children okay and they were not able to adopt a child in france when we went to the orphanage so i grew up as an only child and sometime in that six seven eight year old period i you know, my parents had a kind of a big fireproof box that they had their insurance policies in and the deed to the house and all the valuable papers. And, you know, where some kids go looking in, yeah, you know, 
go look at a mom's underwear drawer or dad's mm -hmm. liquor cabinet. I don't know. I decided to go through the papers in the box and I found a folder that had my mother's name on it. And inside that folder was a legal size white envelope. And when I opened it up, I took out two pieces of paper and I didn't fully understand what I was looking at. But in my gut, I had to feel what they meant. One turned out to be my amended birth certificate mm -hmm. and the other turned out to be my adoption decree. Wow. And I remember looking at that and I, you know, it had my parents' names on it. It had the name of their attorney. And for, you know, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why I recalled the attorney's name, but I, it's never left me. Mm -hmm. And there was another name on it. And I just kind of looked at it and said, gee, wonder who that was and put the papers back in the box, put the box away and, and never asked my parents about it. And, you know, and remember this is back in 1940. Well, the adoption was 1948. So it was the, the very earliest part of the baby scoop era. Mm -hmm. And there was no science attached to teaching people, you know, adoptive parents how to deal with your children. And, uh, you know, very shortly before my wife and I married, and it was not too long before my adoptive mother had passed away, my adoptive mother was telling my wife well, when we adopted, the doctor told us what you need to do is hold your baby as much as you can, tell them you love them and just say, you are a wonderful adopted baby and we love you. Hmm. And I have no doubt that my mother did that. But I have no recollection, you know, whenever I started remembering details, she stopped. And mm. I, I don't think that was intentional. But yeah, so to the, you know, my dad died in nine in the mid 1970s, my mother in the late 1980s. And we never, never, never had the conversation about my adoption. Wow. So did they did they know that you knew that you were adopted? I they certainly had to think I was, or I suppose they would have talked about it, or maybe at some point, you know, when I was very young, they said something that I, that I didn't comprehend, but I don't think so. Yeah. But I, I was, I met with a book club yesterday and I was, somebody asked pretty much the same story. And I remember I was probably in my twenties and my mom was still alive and I was in a car and her, one of her best friends was driving and she started to relate the story about how my birth mother kind of lived in terror in the first 18 months before my adoption was formalized when the social worker would come to kind of check the living conditions and make sure I was all right. So I listened to that. And then I said, yeah, I said, does my mother, yeah. I said, does my mother know that I'm adopted? And she about drove off the road, you know, because she thought she let the cat out of the bag. Oh, my and gosh. I cannot imagine she did not go back and tell my mother. But we never had a conversation after that. Yeah. And, you know, and honestly, for for all those years, my you know, my birth mother passed away. I was 30, 39 years old, 38 years old. Uh yeah, we never talked about it. I never really had any curiosity. You mean it your adoptive mom? My adoptive mom. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And just never had the curiosity because I was I was living what I thought was the good life. Yeah. And you know, and they were both of them were good parents. Yeah, my dad was my adoptive father was yeah, he's kind of the strict disciplinarian. But yeah, it was yeah. more more talk than any 
any action. My mother was the one who kind of, yeah, kind of sheltered me from that. And yeah, life was good. Yeah. So you didn't have any siblings growing up then? No, I never did. An only child. Yeah. And then growing up. So how old were you when you found those papers? I'm thinking seven, eight years old. Okay. And so you never had any like feelings about feeling different after that or, you know, that they never told you. No, you know, it was, it was interesting in that uh, there were two girls who lived about three houses of the away which that came out of kind of a very mixed up family it was not dysfunctional but it was a a family it was, it was just kind of a mixed up family mm-hmm. and i i sort of you know i looked at them and figured okay they're mixed up if i'm mixed up you know so be it and <laughs> there was another child down the block who i who i realized later had been adopted but i don't think i you know really connected or related to him because of adoption but yeah later on in my yeah in my teens there were probably a very small select handful of people that I mentioned I was adopted to and yeah for the most part so okay yeah and yeah and I think you know when you go out there and you talk about it you'll find out there are a whole lot of people who are adopted so it's really not a mystery to most people yeah so grew up and went through life. And then one day you got the inkling to start searching. What kind of triggered that? Yeah. I waited till I was 69. I figured if <laughs> I was going to wait, I would really wait. Uh, you know, thinking about who my birth mother may have been was kind of an annual event that once a year, I would just think, you know, I just, I wonder who would have put me up for adoption. And, and then I just kind of went on with the rest of the year. And virtually never did I think about who my father might have been. Mm-hmm. You know, when I thought of my mother, my first thought was she was a high school girl. It's a typical story who, you know, accidentally became pregnant, went home, faced all of the scorn and disgrace, got sent off someplace and and had a baby taken from her. And yeah. that's pretty much what I lived with, you know, as far as my thoughts went. Um as I was approaching my 69th birthday, my wife and I had had her parents come down here to North Carolina. They had been living in New Jersey and they both arrived in compromised health. Mm. And after not a very long period of time, yeah, my mother-in-law passed away. And then six months later, my father-in-law passed away. So we were back up in New Jersey in February of 2017. And we were at the cemetery where we were going, or we went to go to the cemetery where my in-laws ashes would be interred. And not very far away was another cemetery, which was a Russian Orthodox cemetery. And it's where my, almost all of my adoptive mother's family was interred. And Mm -hmm. they were, they all were Ukrainian. And it was a very big community in southern New Jersey in years gone by and still to some degree, not nearly so much anymore. But we went there and, you know, we kind of made the the rounds of the cemetery and and we were standing over the grave of my adoptive mother's parents, so my adoptive grandparents. And I was thinking it would really be interesting to know more about their history because that's my history. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, as part of that, I had been reading, or I was at the time, reading a book 
called The Lost. And it was a book about the author's search for six distant family members who had perished in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And he knew, he knew they perished in the Holocaust. He wanted to know precisely where, when, and how. Mm. And it's a it's a fabulous book. It's the lost the search for six of six million, and he spent better part of four years re- researching it. Traveled around the world twice looking for for people who had come from the village or the shtetl where where his relatives had lived, and ultimately solved the solved the puzzle. Wow! So I. I sort of had that in me and I was thinking, okay, now if he can travel around the world twice and, and find all of this mysterious information, I bet I could find something about these people. Now, how did you find them to begin with though? Well, I grew up with my, you know, they were my adoptive mother's parents. So I spent a lot of time with, you know, with my, with my grandmother, my grandfather had died very early in my life. Okay, and, uh, I thought you were talking about your biological grandparents. No, no, no. This I'm was sorry. your adoptive. Okay, this okay. is all, a, all okay. the adoptive family. Okay. So I went to the local library and I got on Ancestry.com, typed in their names, and now lo and behold, here comes information. You know, and they were living in a tenement in the Lower East Side of New York when they first got here. Not a surprise. And you could see their progression as they moved uptown to better better quarters. And ultimately they moved out onto Long Island in New York. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, now if it's this easy, Mm. I said, I never went there before. I said that other name on the adoption decree, I instinctively knew had to be my birth mother. Yeah. So I folded up my stuff, went home, got out that envelope, which, you know, we took possession of after my mother had passed away took it out and there was a name, you know, it was my parent, my adoptive parents' names, the attorney's name, and this one other name, Genevieve Narowski. And I hurried back to the library, sat down and, and put in her name and, you know, a screen full of, of documents came up mm. and I decided to click on the one that was dated closest to my birthday. It was 10 months after it was March of 1949. And just interestingly, it was for a, for a travel visa to Rio de Janeiro. Oh, wow. And I said, okay, now what? And it, you know, so it was kind of interesting. I was starting to wonder why would a young woman yeah. who just had a child that she had to put up for, for adoption go to Rio? So I clicked on it and up comes this document, all written in Portuguese, but com- <laughs> But completed in English with her name, with her birth date. And the first thing I found out is she was not a high school girl. She was she was 23 years old when I was born. It gave her parents' names. It gave her address. And that address was probably a a 10-minute bus ride from where I grew up. So we were never, never, never separated by a great deal of distance. And the one really kind of perplexing piece, at least initially, was it listed her profession as an artista. Wow. And that, you know, so I didn't know what kind of an artista. The other piece was it was a two-page document. When I opened the second page, there was my mother looking back at me. Oh. And you and I Was that the first picture you'd seen of her? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And I... I've had a lot of revelations and a lot of surprises in the 
in the course of this journey, but that that's still the biggest one. So, you know, there's this face and I'm kind of looking side to side to see if anyone is looking. No reason anybody should care, right. but it was very, very interesting. Wow. Do you, you see know, any so resemblance I, there? Well, you know, it's funny. I sent the picture back home via email. And when I got home, I told my wife, I want to show you a picture of my mother. And she didn't know I'd been in the library or what I was doing. Yeah. And, and she said, we've got pictures of your mother all over. I said, <laughs> no, not this mother. Right. <laughs> and and she, she said, oh, you look just like her. And I don't think so. I really no. don't. But our son looks very much like her. Oh, there's, okay. there's real resemblance there. So, you know, next day I was back at the library and back on Ancestry again. And so I had her name, Narowski, and and you an artista, and I nothing came up using those search terms. Hmm. But I ultimately found a tried to think which one came up first. I found her marriage license from 1955. She married seven years after I was born. Mm-hmm. I was, yeah, I'm convinced that I was a, I, w- I was a product of a summer romance. And I don't believe my father ever knew I existed. Oh, wow. So, <clears throat> so I had the husband's name. And when I looked at the document, it had her Genevieve Narowski name. It had his last name, which was Meza. But in parentheses, it had Genevieve Narowski Naris, N-O-R-R-I-S. Mm. And it had them both listed as performers. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's getting closer. Yes. So, you know, I sat down at Google and I was kind of doing mixes and matches with the names and performer. And ultimately, I put in Genevieve Naris performer and a an online newspaper came up, which was edited by an antiques dealer in South Carolina. And she explained that she had been at an auction in Atlanta in 2012 and along with a partner had purchased a lot of huge uh, folk art pieces. And they turned out to have been props that were manufactured for for ice skating shows and theatrical events and such. And she explained that they were manufactured by Genevieve and Ted Meza. Oh. Would open the studio after they stopped skate. They stopped performing as professional ice skaters. Wow! So all of a sudden, you know, the door kind of opened up for me. I made contact with that lady who was as helpful as she could be. She didn't know any details. She explained what the what the provenance was of these pieces and what their value was and where they went. And, you know, and I, I ultimately, I thought she was very, very kind. And I, you know, I kept on telling her that. And one day she just kind of took a deep breath and she said, I got to tell you, I'm doing this because my daughter gave up a baby and has no idea where that baby is. Mm. And that I think was my first, first encounter really, you know, with, with adoption beyond my own. So I, Having that information, I went back to Google and I put in Genevieve Norris ice skater and bingo. Immediately, I got another um, another blog came up, which had half a dozen photographs of my mother, promotional oh, wow. photos, her, her middle school diploma, her first professional contract. And the people who, you know, who or the woman who had posted it 
said we were at an auction. It turned out to be the same auction. And, you know, there was this lot of materials that came up for auction, not knowing who the woman was, but just thinking it was a glamorous period in time. We bought it. Mm. And I assume they paid very little for it because, you know, to most people, it had very little value. So it's 2017 when I'm looking at this. They purchased it in 2012. And I'm thinking there's not a prayer. Yeah. But I, I found her on Facebook, and it turned out she was in, she worked at an antique mall. And that just made me even that much more pessimistic, thinking if she was selling antiques, right. she didn't buy these to put in the basement and keep. She bought them to sell. But I sent her a message on Facebook, and I got a message back fairly quickly. And I said, I'm exploring a possible family relationship. And everybody who didn't know me or didn't know the story I approach exactly the same way, you mm-hmm. know, with a possible family relationship. Uh, in her case, it was on Facebook. With most people, I did it you know, via handwritten letter. Oh, wow. And I would recommend that to people. You know, I, I had a couple of cousins tell me, if your letter had not been handwritten, I never would have responded to it. Mm-hmm. Just because it would have been too easy to just keep on, you know, knocking out copies of a letter. So I reached out to her. She responded and said, well, that's really very interesting. I'm very busy now. I'm watching my grandchildren. Can I get back to you? And I said, yes. And I sat by the telephone waiting for something to happen. (laughs) And and seven days later, when she had not gotten back to me, I sent her a much more revealing message on Facebook, telling her my story. And within five minutes, the phone rang. And she said, I am so sorry. I just totally forgot. And she said, this is an amazing story. You need to come to Georgia right now. <laughs> Which was kind of, yeah, it was kind of demanding. Right we, now. We were, in, <laughs> we were in the car and driving a week later, though. Oh, wow. <clears throat> it turned out they had saved all of these things or kept them. And we met them at our hotel down in downtown Atlanta. And she came walking in with a carton full of photographs and a a scrapbook and a number of other things. And she said, Dan is just parking the car. He'll be in. Dan came in about five minutes later with a shield and a sword, sort of like you would see a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and both of them are signed with my mother's signature. They were props that she had created. Oh, wow. So we spent a great deal of time with them. And and they've since become very good friends of ours. And you know, I was taking notes at one point and just writing down names. There were a stack of photographs of other ice skaters, all with names, all saying, gee, you know, to, to Genevieve, the one most wonderful person ever, you know, <laughs> what a great ice skater. And, and I thought if I went through all these names, maybe I would find somebody who could tell me more. And as I was writing down the names, Dan, the husband said, you know, what are you writing down? And I explained what I was going to do. And he just, He shook his head no, and he just sort of like took his hands, pushed the box across Mm. the table. He said, this is all yours. He said, we've just been holding it for you. You know, you don't need to write that down. So it was was one of many generous things that we experienced in in doing this search. What was it like seeing her signature on there? I mean. It it was real neat. She had a very distinctive signature, but I I sort of call it a 1930s signature. Mm -hmm. Because it was not terribly different than my adoptive mother's. 
I think, you know, people back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, even the 50s, when you went to elementary school, they taught penmanship. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we were kind of talking about that last night with my son and his wife. And, uh, yeah, their handwriting is is not nearly what my mother's or my birth mother's mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. But but nobody's is. Nobody yeah. has been educated since then. So it was, it was really, it's, it's an artistic handwriting. Yeah, it really is. You can tell the delicacy and the, and the fine line to it. Did you uh, ever yeah. high skate? <laughs> Everyone Yourself? asks that. That's that's the typical question. Everyone <laughs> asks that. And they always say, well, no, I had weak ankles. But my son is a very accomplished ice hockey really? player. Oh, wow. And the woman he married, he was going out with her before this search began as a certified ice skating coach. <laughs> So, you know, I, I don't, I tried to skate and could not. Yeah, I can't either. <laughs> it, it skipped the G, it, the genes skipped the generation. <laughs> They're both very good skaters. How funny. I would tell you from that box of, of goodies, there was that stack of pay, of pictures from other, other ice skaters. I think the last one on the list was to the best roommate ever love Izzy. Mm. And I said, if anyone's going to know anything about my mother, it certainly would be her. Yeah. You know, her roommates. I went through every name. Could either I found out that, you know, the they were they had passed away or I could not locate them. Izzy, I found an I found a um, obituary for her husband. And I kind of read through it. I wasn't sure. And then at the bottom it said, and you know, and his beloved wife of 60 years, uh, 20 years with ice follies. And I said, that's it. There you go. But it didn't still didn't say whether she was alive or not. And but it had two sons' names on it. And I reached, I found one in Minnesota, sent him a, a handwritten letter with a photostat of one of my mother's pictures and one of his mother's pictures, explained my story. And a week later, you know, he called back and all enthusiastic. He said, mom is still alive. I showed her the pictures and she's really excited. She wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy, you know, and he said, there's just one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, well, mom's in a memory care facility. And he probably heard the air go out of me. Yeah. He said, but you know what? He said, mom cannot tell you what she had for breakfast today, but she will tell you about every minute of 1947. <laughs> and so I made contact with her. I called her. I was on the phone probably for about an hour with her. And I think Izzy at that point was 92 years old. Mm. And I kind of started my conversation with, I know this is really not fair to ask someone who's 92 years old about what happened in 1947. And you could sort of hear her suck in her breath. And she said, who told you I'm 92? <laughs> So I, I said, am I wrong? <laughs> and yeah. she said, yes, I'm 87. Said, As a matter of fact, I'm 85. So, <laughs> so, so we kind of left it at that. And we had a conversation yeah. that went for the better part of an hour. And, and I said something, like I said, if you would have us, I said, maybe sometime, you know, we'll put together some airline miles and hotel points and come and visit you. And she was really pleased to hear that. And then toward the end of the call, she said, now, how old did you say you were? And I said, well, I'm 69. She said, well, I'm 65, you know. <laughs> so she was she was getting younger, younger by. Younger. <laughs> and, and, 
in, in great, great increments there. So was but she we, able to tell you? We did go out and we visited with her. She told me a lot about my mother in terms of, I think, the nature and the kind of person she was and why she was anxious to be roommates with her, why in the dressing room she wanted to sit beside her. She had no clue that my mother was pregnant at the time that they were roommates. Mm. Oh, wow. And she said, if she was pregnant, I cannot believe what she did on ice with you in her belly. <laughs> because my mother was what they called an adagio skater, which is kind of a contradiction. You know, it's adagio and music is slow. Mm. And ice skating, it is, you know, it's it's fast and violent with throws and lifts yeah. and spins. You know, so it's kind of like a centrifuge in there. And but yeah, it, it worked out fine. I you know, she she became pregnant in San Francisco in August of 1947. That's where Ice Follies spent their summers. Mm. They opened in Los Angeles in early September and then moved on to Chicago from there. And I'm sure somewhere on the way to Chicago, she realized something was up. Yeah. And, you know, and that's where the, her, her plans of how do I manage this started to go into place. Yeah. So you've been talking to a bunch of people about your mother. I'm assuming that she passed. You, did you ever meet she her? She did. Yeah. I, she, I said I was searching in 19, I'm sorry, in 2017. I learned that she passed away in 2014. Mm. She was 88 years old and I was, yeah. You know, you know, I waited and that was the price of waiting and yeah, yeah. so be it. I, I was disappointed that I did not have the opportunity though. Yeah. Did you um, find any siblings from her side? I or? did. She, as I said, she was married in 1955 to a fellow performer. And in 1956, she had one son and 58, a second son. The younger of two passed away in 2009 under you know, some unfortunate circumstances. Mm. Mm. I had trouble connecting with the older son, my older brother or my yeah. half brother, and finally was able to do that. And the first time I explained to him, you know, he, there was just kind of silence. He had, he had been in a calamitous fire a year after his mother passed away oh, wow. and had been in in a hospital or a, rehab facility for 28 months at that point oh, and was just getting ready to be released. Wow. He met a woman in the facility who he married in the facility. Mm. And so we were on the phone and I kind of explained to him and there was a pause and he said, can I call you back? I have to take Cheryl for a walk. Mm. And I said, okay, she, he needs to process this. And yeah, so we just hung up and I didn't hear from him for probably the better part of a month. So he was doing some deep processing. Yeah, yeah. So I got back in touch with a person who had connected us. And yeah, I explained to him, I said, yeah, I really want to talk to Ted. And he explained, well, Ted's in the process of getting out and this and that. But but Ted did call me, you know, and then he said, now, one more time, you know, tell me, what did you tell me the last time? I said, well, I said, I told you that you and I have different fathers, but we share the same mother. Mm -hmm. and you could you could hear his head shaking no on the other side he said no I don't know how that could be mommy and daddy were always together oh. 
I said, I don't think so. I said, you know, I said, your daddy was skating with Holiday on Ice at the time. And our mother was in San Francisco in August of 1947 with Ice Follies. He said, well, my mama would have told me. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, mamas are not going to tell their, no. <laughs> their sons. They had a you know, child out of wedlock before they got married. So we left it at that, and we talked again soon after that. And he said, well, he said, One, just tell me, what kind of kin are we? And I, I went through the explanation again and still was not either not clicking or he just was not yeah. going to accept it. Yeah. And I said, I, I, we'd really like to come down and visit with you at some point. And there are a couple of things. I wanted to meet him. I I really had a, a feeling that I I wanted to know where my mother was buried and visit her mm-hmm. grave. And he was very open to, yeah, come on down. So, you know, we, we went down there. There was actually, I think, a threat of a hurricane in Florida that weekend. So all the traffic was going the wrong way. And we checked into the hotel and we finally went and, and actually in the hotel, I was looking out the window, watching the traffic and I was watching TV and looking at the chocolate fountain for the, for, um, for one of the restaurants, the buffet restaurants. I said, that's where we'll take Ted. <laughs> I said, yeah, I said, if it's one of these things where you can get up and just walk away from the table, this might be a good place. <laughs> yeah. I said, if it's awkward for him, he right. can go. If it's awkward for me. So so that's what we did. And we went there. You know, we just a little chit-chat along the way, some chit-chat over dinner. And there were a couple of times when he decided he needed more salad. And once I went for fried chicken. And mm. and on the way back in the car, you know, once we were starting to drive and we were going to go back to, to his apartment, he said, now Cheryl, and Cheryl is his wife, Cheryl wants to know what kind of kin we are. Oh, gosh. And Linda, my wife, and I kind of quick glanced it out of the corner of our eyes. And and I explained one more time, and he said the same thing again. You know, my mama would have told me, and mama and daddy were always together. Yeah. So I just said, let me just drive. Yeah. When we got home, when we got back to his apartment, he immediately went into his bedroom, and it turned out he had a big walk-in closet there. And he came back with a big roll of posters, you know, the kinds of things you see mm. hanging in in theater lobbies and such. Wow. And they were from Holiday on Ice or from, yeah, from Holiday on Ice. And they were all from one year after the other listing all the cast members. And he went to 1944 and there's his daddy. Yeah, no Genevieve. He went to 45, same thing. 46, I could tell he's getting a little concerned because I said, Ted, I said, you know, I said, your daddy was with Holiday and Ice. It says it right here. But I said, I know where our mother was. She was in San Francisco with a different company. Yeah. And he kind of shook his head and he opened up 1946. And and no. And I, I said, Ted, I said, mm. you can open 47. She's not going to be there. And he did. And he quietly rolled them all up, picked them up and left. Mm. Went back to his bedroom, came back with a big photograph album. And my mother kept this meticulous album chronologically and all labeled with where she was, who she was with, and when she was there. And same thing. So he started 1944 again. (laughs) And this is an album full of those little 
three by three black and white oh, brownie wow. snapshots. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, that's all there was back then. And he went through 43 and 44 and 45 and 46. And I put my hand on the page. I said, before you turn this, I said, I don't know what's there. Mm-hmm. I said, but our mother was in San Francisco in August of 1947. I took my hand off and he flipped the page. <laughs> and in the middle of the page was the only color photograph oh, wow. in the entire album. And it's labeled San Francisco, California, August 1947. Yeah. And he kind of looked at that. And at that point, he just folded up the album, put it away again, came back out. And he said, do you want a beer? <laughs> and we we did not discuss it anymore that night. Yeah. You know, we had the beer. He, Linda and I went back to the hotel. And and the next day, you know, I, I, we came back and his friend who had been the one who who connected us was there with him and we kind of talked and we, you know, we started getting back on the subject and he kept on shaking his head. Yeah. Mama would have told me. And I had brought a copy of my adoption decree and it had his mama's signature and I had seen it in enough other places that I knew it was her. So, you know, when he took a breath, I said, Ted, I've got something to show you. And I, you know, I said, this is my adoption decree. It said, your mother gave me up, and these were the people who took me in adoption. And he looked at it, and he instantaneously knew when he saw the signature. Yeah, he knew, but he handed it to his friend Kevin, and Kevin really did not want any part of this discussion. It was was like he handed him something on fire, and Kevin just kind of shrugged his shoulder and handed it back. And yeah, so Ted looked at it. He started to hand it back to me. And I said, you know what? I said, this is a photocopy. I said, the only people in the world that this has any value to are me and you. Mm -hmm. I said, so if you want to keep the copy, it's fine with me. And so he folded it up. He put it in his desk. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. Yeah. This is a Sunday, you you know, lunchtime or so. And so Thursday he called me. And he had gone back to the facility where his wife was still a resident and where he was apparently had a good relationship with a man who who managed it. He said, well, I took that paper you gave me and I showed it to Mike. And he said, no more. So I I needed to prompt. I said, well, what did Mike say? So Mike asked me if that's mama's signature. And then there's science. Says, what did you tell Mike? He said, well, I told Mike that's mama's signature. Mm-hmm. What did Mike say? He said, <laughs> said, Ted, if that's your mama's signature, it sure looks like you got yourself a brother. And from that moment on, he was fine. Oh, there's wow. never been a question. His response from there is, well, I guess every woman has a secret. Oh, wow. And yeah, so it was, it, it took a while. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, and it was interesting. I, I, I thought about this yesterday. I've thought about it several times when, when I did not know if my mother was alive or not, I thought about, you know, if, okay, if I find her and where I find her, you know, how do you walk into someone's life after all these years and say, here I am. And so I, I had really kind of figured out how I would say it and what I would say. And, you know, and that opportunity never came up. I just kind of crashed into Ted's life. Yeah. I just sort of got him on the telephone and said, guess what? Yeah. You know, so he he deserves 
he deserves some slack for, you know, for having to take the time to really process sure. and, and understand and believe. Yeah, definitely. You know, he also came from the place where, you know, you hear the stories of people show up and they're trying to steal something from oh, yeah. Him yeah. with a bogus story. And, and he right. had nothing to steal. Yeah. So it was, but it's, it's all been good from there. Did you find anything out about your paternal side? I did. Right about the same time I started searching, actually it was, is even before I bought two DNA kits, mm-hmm. one for me, one for my wife, we knew what hers would say. My yeah. wife is half Irish, half half Jewish, and we knew, and that 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 proved out. I, you know, my adoptive father was Sicilian, my adoptive mother was Ukrainian, and you know, depending on the way the wind blew, that's kind of the way I identified all through my life, but. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to find out for real on what my ethnicity was and really never gave any thought to to finding anybody because of it. Yeah. And when the results came back, I got my pie chart, which said I was not Sicilian, probably did have <laughs> some Ukrainian there, uh, had a chunk of Ashkenazi Jewish DNA. Mm. And then they gave me my list of my 1200 close relatives. Yes. And, you know, so the t- name at the top of the list that was listed as a first cousin, close relative. Wow. And by that point, I knew all of my mother's family tree. And I knew for certain this was not, not on the maternal side. So, you know, I, I looked at the matches name and I went on to ancestry. And he, as it turned out, he is a, a Latter-day Saint, and he had a public tree online with better part of four or five hundred names on it. Wow! And I looked at, so I'm thinking, if this, you know, if this match is my first cousin. If he's got an uncle or uncles, one of them has to be my father. So I looked, and his father had no siblings. Hmm. His mother, I believe, had four other sisters and one brother, Uncle Harris. Oh wow! And so I kind of went and I puttered around trying to figure out Uncle Harris's background because I'm thinking this is this is my father. And he had a long history in Austin, Texas as an attorney. Hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. You know, so I so I reached out to the person who I matched with and I told him I'm really, you know, kind of excited that you know to find somebody and this is what I've been up to since then. And he, you know, he responded almost immediately and gave me a little bit of his background and said, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, you know, to, that we've matched and it'd be really interesting to pursue this and anything I can do to help you, I'd be happy. Nice. So this is good because you hear all the stories about people yes. who just never get an answer yeah. or get an answer saying, go away, don't bother me. Yeah. So this was another one of those serendipitous, generous moments. And yes, yeah, so I kind of pondered the whole uncle thing again and finally wrote him another message saying, here's what I'm thinking. And he wrote back again, probably within five minutes. He said, that makes pretty good logic. Let me let me think about that for a bit. Ten minutes passed and he wrote me back again. He said, he said, your logic is good, but the facts don't don't uphold mm. it. He said, I can tell you two things. You you're 25 percent Ashkenazi Jew. Uncle Harris doesn't have a a trace of Jew Jewish in him. And I could tell you also, you said that you were conceived in San Francisco. Uncle Harris never left Texas. Mm. 
And it was kind of like when, you know, when Isabel's son said, you know, mom's in memory care. He did probably, probably this deflated silence. He said, but I've got another theory. Mm. He said, my father was half Jewish. He said, I am 25% Jewish. Said you and I are half brothers. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and as it turned out, that was precisely the case. Oh wow! And I was conceived between my father's second and third of five marriages. Mm. And yes, yeah, so he was he was a ladies' man or Romeo. a player or whatever you want to call him. <laughs> and I don't have the faintest thought that he knew anything mm. other mm-hmm. than yeah, he had a good time while my mom was in town and. And she yeah. left and he moved on. He got married not very long after that. Yeah. And I did have a, I had the opportunity to, to meet my half brother. His mother, who was the third wife, was very anxious to meet me because initially she was kind of upset. She was trying to figure out the timetable. No. Oh. <laughs> she was kind of concerned they were going out and he was making babies somewhere else. Right. But when we get out to my brothers, he said, if you don't mind, my mother would really like to meet you. And we did. We went and we met her. And she was, I think, 98 at the time, 97, but bright and alert. And so we went in and my half-brother introduced me and my wife and our son who was with us. And and she was very nice and cordial. And then she told my brother, Rich, take them out and show show them the artwork. I want to talk to him, (laughs) meaning me. Yeah. And she said, sit down. I have things to tell you. And all she wanted to do was tell me about my father. Oh. And it was not necessarily, you know, he was not a stellar, stellar citizen. But she, you know, she tried to, what do they call powder the pig? Hmm. You know, she was trying to present the story as best she could. And she sort of told me about the, the background that he had had. And he was a, he was a child of parents who didn't want, want a child. And, you know, mm. so and he is a compulsive and impetuous person. But I again, I thought that was a really generous thing. It was somebody who, yeah. who didn't need to do that. You know, my my yeah, you know, my father, her husband, walked out on her and her son after they had been married ten years. He just yeah. got up one day, said, "Got to go," and never came back. Wow! Wow! You know, so, so that that was an interesting thing too. Is was meeting her, but and yeah, my. I, I'm much more similar, I think, with my my paternal half brother and maternal, mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of one of these nature versus nurture discussions. Yeah, and I think I think I I got shaped by nurture, not the nature. Yeah, and but it was cute as we were leaving. You know, we kind of hugged and said goodbye, and he said, I "Just want to ask you." He said, "Do you think there are any more of us out there?" <laughs> And so far, no one's shown up yet, but yeah, but you never know. I know that's what we say about my biological dad too. <laughs> Every time I get a hit, my biological sister's like, "Don't tell me there's another one of us." Out there. <laughs> I'm like, "Nope, not yet." <laughs> Same thing. So, what have you come to learn about adoption from your search and in the years since? Well, I I think going into this search. I don't know if it's a man's approach to things or somebody who just kind of process things quickly. If you would ask me, you know, tell me about adoption, I would have treated it as an event. Mm. You know, something happens that causes a woman to need to give up a child. The child goes here, the parents go here, the mom goes there, 
and life goes on. And yeah, and I, I learned very quickly that's not the case. Yeah. You know, it's it's not the case for anybody in that in that combination. But I, you know, I I maybe it's because it was my mother who I who I got so close to in doing all this research. You start to understand what the fear is and the thought process is going into relinquishing a child. Mm-hmm. The what has to be traumatic in saying, here's my baby, good luck. Yeah. Or take care, take good care. And you know, and then what do you live with afterwards? You know, what's what stays with you? Yeah. And so, yeah, that has given me just a profound appreciation of birth mothers. Mm-hmm. And I realize, you know, when we get on social media and stuff, you there's a lot of talk about adoptive parents. There's a lot of talk about adoptees, not nearly so much about the about the birth mothers. And yeah, and there are a bunch of people out there. And I I've done a lot of interviews since because I'm writing a sequel now, which which traces my mother's life from the time she she surrendered me to the time she learns that she's pregnant with her first son by by her husband. And she traveled through the Caribbean and South America and Europe. So so part of it is the the physical journeying and performing. But the other part of that is, you know, is what is the emotional baggage that that she likely carried with her through that period? And you know, I've been fortunate enough when to locate a pretty good number of, of birth moms from the oldest ones probably gave up children in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. So I even kind of predate them, but 1960s, before you know, before it, you know, adoption became so prevalent and abortion became more prevalent, mm-hmm. and they all tell the, tell the same stories about what their, you know, what the emotions were and how they dealt with them, and you know, mm-hmm. and there was not one of them who said, "Oh yeah, you know, after a year I forgot." Yeah. nobody forgot. You know, and I and I feared that just having these discussions opened wounds, but but most of them were very generous and were very happy to talk about it, which again, it's a very generous thing. Yeah. I have the same dilemma on the podcast trying to get birth mothers to come on. And, you know, I ask myself the same question. Is it because I'm an adoptee and they are wondering what kind of line of questioning, you know, what's my motive? Or is it because they don't want to open that wound and talk about it? But I just feel that unless we do go back to the very beginning and find out what was going on there, we aren't getting the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I'm going to try this year and you've, you've connected me with someone already that I'm having come on. So thanks. And she's a gem. She is a gem. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. And, um, Hopefully, the more I have birth mothers on, more I'll come forward and see that. Yeah, I I'm hope so. Trying to educate, I'm just trying to educate the whole, you know, the the whole triad, the whole world about the triad, right? Um, you know, about what really goes on. So yeah, no people have asked me, you know, like what would you tell people? And it's just mm-hmm. you know, go in with some level of openness and sympathy and understanding because there's, yeah, there could be a story there there's that you just story. don't understand. Everyone's a got a story. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So you have the first book, the gift best given. Do you have a title for the second book? And do you know about when it's coming out or? I I keep on saying the second quarter of this year. I think it's probably much more likely the third quarter. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm still kind of fumbling with names. As I've gone and done talks about about the gift best given and the process and that journey, I, I've been kind of using the tagline of a, a son's search and a mother's journey. Mm. And I've had some thoughts about maybe using that as a title, but I think it's a little bit cumbersome. Mm. I keep on putting my story into chat GPT to see what yes. comes back out. <laughs> and and they, they, it's come out with some fairly, you know, fairly kind of fun. workable yes. things, but they're, you know, most of them are too long for me mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. just assume I'm a woman. Oh, so, <laughs> but with, I could fix that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I could fix that there, but I've been having a good time. It's just kind of written in two pieces and, my mother left a a pretty good stack of handwritten notes, uh, which she left for her son, which I think really is all she could give him at the time. And he was kind enough to let me copy them. So it gives no, me, nice. it doesn't talk about my adoption. It doesn't talk about me, but it talks about where she was and kinds of things she was doing. So I've, I've taken those and I've taken the interview results and stuff, and I'm starting to to blend them. So, you know, one piece will be my kind of my discussion and the second piece will be Genevieve's diary entry. Mm. And it's, yeah, so yeah. far it's working nicely. It's, it's not a, it's a slow process because you're trying to put yourself in somebody else's head. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I did that a little bit with the first book and, and it seemed to work much, much easier, but I knew where the end of the story was in right. this one. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. Not, not quite so much. Yeah. Well, that'll be interesting. So I always like to close with the same question. What would you like struggling adoptees to know? Well, I think we touched on it. You know, there are stories out there. So I think if you are struggling, if you're, if you are le- emotionally struggling, find somebody who can help you. I, you know, you don't want to carry that baggage around with you. If you are just not satisfied with what you think you know, I would say get out there and persistently search with an open mind mm-hmm. and you know, keep your mind open to what it is you ultimately find. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, be kind to others yeah. and be kind to yourself. You know, I, I hear a lot of adoptees talking and, and they, they're, you know, they're hurt. But they're turning the hurt back around on themselves. So, you know, you, you know, it, nothing is your fault. Yeah. You know, so you know, give yourself a break and you know, take a deep breath and go and see what you find. But again, approach that with a, with an open and a forgiving mind. Yeah, good advice. So, where can we find you? Give us all the details on where your book yeah. is at, and if you have a website and all that good I, stuff. I do have a website and it's www.deganjiauthor.com and the book can be purchased there, a signed copy and inscribed. And, and I typically mail them out right away and you can get it in a soft cover, a hard cover, or even a, an 800 page large print book. If you're, if you're struggling nice. with your site, uh, the book is available any place you would typically find books. Otherwise, you know, certainly on all the online retailers, um, your your local bookstore, if they don't have it, they can order it. And okay. it's you know, and I purposely published in a way that it's it's easily available. And um 
I guess that's about it. You know, it's it's out there. I'm on social media again with Facebook and Instagram and and okay. LinkedIn again with Diganji author. We'll have all those so. links in the show notes, so it'll be easy to find you and your book. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on and contacting me. And I got my signed book the other day. So thank you oh, for that. Good. Thank you. And I, I appreciate- thumbed through it. I love all the pictures in there. And I have to say, I love the cover because I was born in San Francisco. So when I saw. Okay. So we're kin <laughs> then. <laughs> Another story that I have heard that could totally be made into a movie. And I can't wait for his second book to come out so that I could read more about his birth mother's journey. Although we can kind of probably figure out why she gave Edward up because of her career and that probably she wasn't really in a committed relationship with the birth father. But what a life to be able to travel the world with a ice skating troupe. Just thinking of the life that she was probably living is just fascinating. The other fascinating thing is I mentioned earlier is Edward was not really bothered that he was not told and it was never discussed that he had been adopted. And I'm sure some would argue that Edward is just in the fog or he doesn't want to look at his adoption trauma. But I choose to think that we are just wired differently, all of us. Why some people can be adopted and not wonder about their biology? I don't know. I wasn't one of those people, but I do believe that there are people that really don't have to know. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're in the fog. And that could be a discussion for a whole nother podcast. But thank you so much, Edward, for coming on the show and telling us about your book and your life and your story. If you would like to come on the podcast, you can be any part of the triad. Get in touch with me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. If you want to become part of the Karma Crew, you can do that on my website, mindyourownkarma.com. Get in touch with me. Let's get your story on the podcast. If you are unlike Edward and you are struggling with adoption trauma and everything that surrounds your journey, I can help. I am a somatic mindful guided imagery practitioner who uses light hypnotherapy, meditation, and guided imagery to help you create a life you love. Whether professional or personal, SMGI might be one of the numbers in your winning combination. Go to my website, somatichealingjourneys.com to find out more about me and this innovative somatic therapy. Thank you so much for joining me today. And as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.